Now, do you want to read the psalm? 119.57? Do you want to read that? Or? Uh, you can go ahead. Okay, I'll read it. You don't have your Bible there. Okay, here we go. Okay, Psalm 119, verse 57. You are my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep your words. I entreated your favor with my whole heart. Be merciful to me according to your word. I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. The cords of the wicked have bound me, but I have not forgotten your law. At midnight, I will rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous judgments. I am a companion of all who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your mercy. Teach me your statutes. All right, let's see what we have here. We got uh, today is, let me turn that off. Today is the, anybody know what the day is? 10th, 7th, 7th. It's the 7th, July. 7th of July, 2022. Okay. <laughs> 7, 7th July. Okay, we got when did democracy begin in America? The founder of American democracy was born on July 7th, 1586 in Marfield, England. His name was Thomas Hooker. In 1608, he graduated from Emmanuel College, Cambridge, the quintessential Puritan college of its time. Three years later, he received a Master of Arts degree and became a lecturer at the college until 1618. It was during this time that he experienced a transforming spiritual rebirth. He was so excited about what had happened to him that he preached a series of sermons at the college about his conversion. Later, as a lecturer at the church of St. Mary in Kelmsford, he attracted attention, both good and bad. Many were drawn to his preaching and became his committed followers. At the same time, the hierarchy of the Anglican Church, which at the time was a halfway house between the Reformed Church and the Church of Rome, became his committed opponents. Forced to leave Kelmsford because of his Puritan views, he went to Little Badao, where he began a school with assistance from John Eliot, later the missionary to the American Indians. In 1629, Hooker was called before the archbishop to answer for his evangelical preaching and nonconformity to the Anglican Church. He was released under a bond of 50 English pounds to force him to appear at a later date before the High Court, or I'm sorry, before the Court of High Commissioners. A Puritan farmer became surety for him, and a group of Hooker's friends paid off the farmer. Hooker abandoned the bond and escaped to Holland where for two years he was an assistant pastor of the English nonconformist church at Delft. During this time, a group of his former followers from Kelmsford had emigrated to the Massachusetts Bay Colony and were known as Mr. Hooker's Company. They encouraged Hooker to follow them to New England. Hooker returned to England and decided to go to Massachusetts Bay, leaving on the same boat in 1633 as John Cotton who would become a teacher of the First Church of Boston and the father of New England Congregationalism. Hooker became pastor of the church in Newton, present-day Cambridge, Massachusetts. The church prospered and its leading member, John Haynes, was elected governor of Massachusetts Bay. Members of Hooker's church complained for years that they had insufficient land for farming. Therefore, in 1635, they moved to a site along the Connecticut River and named their town Hartford. Since they were now outside the Charter of Massachusetts Bay, they formed their own government, naming their settlement Connecticut. 
1638, the General Court of Connecticut was given the responsibility of drawing up a constitution for Connecticut. The document was called the Fundamental Orders and was the first written constitution in America. As the leader of the Connecticut settlers, Thomas Hooker preached a sermon to the framers of their constitution. He stated that the foundation of all authority is laid in the free consent of the people and that the privilege of election belongs to the people. This concept was diametrically opposed to the principles undergirding Massachusetts. The leaders were in total opposition to democracy where Hooker was committed to it. In Massachusetts, only church members could vote. In Connecticut, suffrage was for all citizens. The seed of democracy had been planted in America. In 1643, Hooker was a prime mover in organizing the United Colonies of New England, the earliest system of federal government in America. Although he had considerable political influence, above all, Thomas Hooker was a faithful expositor of the Bible and one of the most powerful preachers of his generation. They asked, do you believe Hooker or the leader of Massachusetts were correct on the issue of democracy? America's founding fathers largely feared democracy and out of that fear created a republic in which final authority rests with the democratically elected officials. Does the Bible shed any light as to which is preferable, a pure democracy or a federal representative form of government? And Revelation 19, 6 and 7, Hallelujah for the Lord our, God, Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and honor Him. Good stuff there. Okay, and then we have a couple prayer requests. Let me put this right here where it won't get lost. Okay, uh, let's see here. We got some prayer requests. Um, Maya over in the Czech Republic, she said, My grandma, 94, has a fracture somewhere in the back and so... She wears, uh, she will have to wear a corset and stay in the hospital uh, and probably lay most of the bed, uh, in bed most of the time, and that's for six weeks. Meanwhile, my grandpa, who went into the hospital for something different, needed to leave because the guy that he was with had COVID, and then uh, he got COVID. He's back at his house in, um, he's, they're both 94 too, which makes it a little troubling, but um, they, uh, uh, she is in the hospital and didn't have her teeth or anything else, but because he got COVID, somebody was able to go to the house and get the things for her out of there and get them to her. So things are good and things are difficult at the same time for them, but she's asking for prayer for both of her grandparents who have very difficult physical situations right now, and that is Bert, uh, and then she gives a couple names, Aldobert or Wojtek in Czech, and her name is Maja. And I'm assuming the J is pronounced. It might be Maya, like her. Anyway, it is Maja? Okay. Maya. Maya. Maya, okay. So we don't pronounce the J. Okay, so there you go with that. But she's asking for prayer for them. And then I had another prayer request, which I can't find. But um, we have today, for the first time in two years in the church, Pat Simmons is here. And uh, so she is here. And not only is she here, she is here on the... Uh, anniversary of being baptized in the Manatee River on 7777. Okay, and then as an added bonus to that, next Sunday she is going to turn 96 years old. So, um, happy birthday to you in two ways. 
Uh, yeah, she uh, gave up Roman Catholicism and uh, accepted Christ as her Lord and was baptized in the Manatee River back when I was, let's see, I was probably 13 or she let's see. 50. Uh, what's that? 50 at the time. She got saved. There you go, 50 years old. And did so, you mention uh, Jim? For his oh, yeah, that's what's what I needed. Jim yeah. Dwyer is currently at home. He's not going to be here. I don't know when he's going to come. It'll be up to him if he wants to walk or whatever, but right now he has got his uh, uh, quad was torn on Sunday, and most people know that, but it was torn almost completely severed. And so they said, you need to have an emergency surgery, and they they put him into surgery yesterday afternoon, and he was home by the evening, which uh, is great. He's home, but uh, uh, he, listen, he was, he was tore his quad. No. He, no, he was Tubing. sitting in a tube floating down a river. Yes. Tim just needs to be wrapped in bubble plastic. He needs to be completely wrapped up and he's not allowed to do anything anymore. No, there was nothing like that. He was just sitting in a tube going down a river and he tore his quad. So there you go with that. Okay, so uh, we'll go ahead and open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you very much for the chance to come into your presence and uh, pray for these people and uh, praise for Pat in her uh, journey that began some time ago and which is on to eternity. And uh, Lord, we're very grateful about that. And we just um, pray for Maya and her grandparents. The situation over there is complicated, but there's good news that came out of it at the same time. So we just hope that your hand will be with them and help them through this trial. And uh, Lord, we are so grateful to you for the many blessings of this life. Thank you for the chance that we can meet in here and uh, pray and uh, then have a study of your precious word. And we ask that you uh, bless our time here today. And as always, if there's anything that is incorrect in the doctrine that is presented, we would ask that that would not sink into the ears of the people that hear it and instead that they would be alerted to that. And uh, we would never teach something purposefully wrong, Lord, but uh, it's a big word, it's a complicated word, and we're uh, doing our best to uh, present it to the people of God in a way that uh, is understandable and doctrinally correct. And Lord, please let your hand be upon us in that matter, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How are we doing tonight? Okay, let's see here. We got, uh, we're going to get started in the book of um, Colossians. Uh, Colossians today. We're in Colossians chapter 1, and uh, we're in verse today. Now you can start, Jim always starts like at the top of a paragraph or something. So you start wherever you want. If it's uh, verse 1, you want to start there and just go yeah, down to verse 4, that's fine. That is absolutely no problem at all. So there you go. Yeah. Okay. Colossians 1, starting verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. And by the way, I'm reading NSAB 1995. NASB. NASB. S-B. You said N-S-A-B. Yes. <laughs> what he said. Not the only one with dyslexia. That's me all through. I, uh, I should not be here. Jim, please come back. <laughs> Verse 2. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And now we get to our verse. Verse, verse 4. Yeah. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Okay, it's almost identical. Instead of the love, they say your love. That's the only difference there. But, oh, one more thing. We want to give a praise to the Lord because um, our friends here that have just come from Israel, 
I have moved into their house as of today. They got their keys and went over, and they're still moving in, and they'll be fully moved in tomorrow. But we just want to thank the Lord for finally getting that because it was a tough time finding a place. It really was. And uh, uh, they're only a three-hour drive away, so they should be... <laughs> Not really, but it's it's hard to find a place right now just because of uh, the season is just ending and things will uh, you know start falling back into place over the next month and a half or so. But anyway, um, here we go. We got uh, verse 4. 1, 4. It is claimed from this verse that Paul had not been to Colossae before writing this epistle because of the words, since we heard of your faith. There's nothing to suggest that he had not been there, and such words are not intended to mean that. In fact, he uses the same term in writing to the Ephesians that he uses here. And there is no doubt at all that he was the founder of the church in Ephesus. That is found in uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Let me see here. Whip over there really quickly. Chapter 1 and verse 15. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. So he says the same thing, and yet he was the founder of the church. And he's the, you know, just follow through the book of Acts and that becomes quite evident. So uh, let's see here. Um, he is merely writing now about the faith that they held at the present time. They had faith in the past, and he is thanking God for the faith which continues to the present. He's just simply acknowledging that they haven't lost their faith or something, okay? Uh, they not only heard the gospel and received it unto salvation, but they also continued in that faith, walking in it unto rewards, okay? Uh, once again, and it, I know it's a stickler with a lot of people, but uh, it, it, this chair, as long as I'm sitting in it, uh, I teach the doctrine of eternal salvation. That's because that is what the Bible teaches, okay? Uh, I understand people disagree with that, but uh, when God makes a decree, when he states something, it is eternal. There's no change in God, and when he says that I have made a covenant with Israel, that covenant will stand. The only thing about the old covenant is that it stands until it is fulfilled. In the case of the new covenant, God has made a covenant with his people, and he says that if you call on the name of Jesus, you will be sealed with the Holy Spirit, and then he calls it a guarantee, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. God does not make mistakes saying, oh, I'm guaranteeing something, but now you have uh, changed the parameters, and therefore I'm going to unguarantee it. That is not what God does. He doesn't make mistakes because he knows everything immediately and intuitively, okay? And so if he knew that you would lose your salvation, he never would have sealed you in the first place. But he has made a covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ that he is uh, saving you based on your faith in him. And so when Paul says something like this, he's saying, I've heard of your faith, okay? That's saying that I understand you were saved, you're continuing in your salvation, but he never, never calls into question the salvation of a person. He will say, yeah, you're continuing in your faith, and you know that works for rewards and losses, which is found in 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5, but he never questions the salvation of a person. He does say that people have shipwrecked their faith, such as uh, the two in uh, Timothy, and he names them, and then he says, I've handed them over to Satan, which is exactly the same thing he says about the person in 1 Corinthians 5. Hand him over to Satan that his uh, uh, soul, uh, his uh, flesh may be destroyed, but his spirit saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I hope I quoted that right. I'm going to read that to you from the book just so that you have the right thing. He's very clear that this person remains saved despite 
uh, committing sin worse than the Gentiles. He says, um, uh, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Yes, that's what I was thinking I might have gotten wrong, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. It's a done deal. He never questions this person's salvation. When he says he's handing him over to Satan, Satan is the ruler of this world, okay? He has no authority over the world that has been granted by this person's profession of faith in Jesus Christ, okay? He's very clear about that. He is very clear about it. I said 1 Corinthians 3, I'll take you there very quickly. It says basically the same thing about salvation. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder. I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take, his, take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. This person has accepted Jesus Christ, the foundation. Now, if anyone builds, that's what he's talking about right now in the book of Colossians, in which he also said in 115 of Ephesians. If anyone builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work, something that happens after salvation, of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Absolutely. He never questions the salvation of a person that walks away from the faith and has zero rewards. He says he's going to be saved, yet as so through fire. And then I said 2 Corinthians chapter 5, might as well take you there before we go back to Ephesians. Because Paul, this is making a point that people try to twist what Paul says, as Peter said people would do and change the parameters of Paul's words. And that is not at all what Paul is saying as far as you know this being their uh, introduction in this epistle or that they could lose their salvation or any other thing people come up with. Um, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's speaking to believers here. He's not speaking of all people. He's speaking about believers, okay? That each one may receive the things done in the body according to whether he is done what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known to you, in, known in your consciences. So he's talking about the uh, holding fast to Christ after being saved, because the terror of the Lord is that you are going to stand before him and you are going to be judged. And as he says, there may be not much left of you after your judgment, but you will be saved yet as so through fire. And so, you know, that's just the way it is. And uh, someday I'm going to punch my ticket. And if the uh, Lord hasn't come by that time, then hopefully somebody else will take over and preach here. And if he wants to change his mind about eternal salvation, he can be as wrong as he wants. But the Bible tells us that we are saved by Jesus Christ forever. Okay? What we do with that salvation is what is the... uh, it's what is up to us after we are saved. 
And so we would hope that people would continue. Oh, one more thing. You know, we talked about you getting your house and uh, we've got Jody and Don back. You know, they walked in literally the second I pushed the button. And so I'm a little off on uh, things, but Jody and Don who got married one month ago, one month and four days, is it? How, how long is it? Quite a month. Oh, I thought you said it was a month a day ago. You did, you said it's been a month. Okay. According to weeks. Okay. Oh, according to weeks. According He's to counting weeks. weeks. He's counting days. But anyway, congratulations for having you guys back. You know, we were we were wondering if you were ever going to come back from the beautiful land of Hawaii, and uh, so we're glad to see you. But congratulations. Okay. Yeah, back in reality once again. Okay. So um, there you go with that. We'll go on with the commentary. But I wanted to not forget to acknowledge that they are here and that they are still. They they said they wouldn't make it, and they're still married month later. This is great. This is great. Oh boy. Okay. Yeah, I, I know. Okay, here we go. So um, Paul is merely writing now about the faith that they held at the present time. They had faith in the past and he is thank, thanking God for the faith which still continues to the present. That is what got me on the tangent about talking about eternal salvation. And this faith is in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's words, in Christ Jesus. It is, and there's another argument for eternal salvation. We could go on and on with this all night long. But when you are in Christ, Christ would have to cut off a part of himself in order to unsave you, okay? Think it through logically. He will not do that, okay? He has covenanted with you. God has covenanted with you through Christ. You move from Adam to Christ, okay? That is eternal. And once again, I say it every week, you, you're sins are forgiven when you come to Christ. And then you no longer have sins imputed to you when you come to Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19. If your sins are forgiven past and you no longer have sins imputed because you're no longer under law, how can you lose your salvation? Just think it through. It's very logical. It's very orderly the, what God has done in Jesus Christ. You are saved despite yourselves. That was one of the very first sermons I ever preached was out at Grace Baptist, which is no longer Grace Baptist, but it, uh, uh, they asked me to fill in four times, and one of them I had eternal salvation despite yourselves as the title of the sermon, because everybody says, well, I need to do something. I need to do something. God has done everything. What you need to do is to continue in your salvation for rewards and for pleasing the Lord with the life that you have been given. That's what you need to do. You don't have to, but that's what you need to do. Okay, it is uh, in Christ Jesus, it is saving faith and an enduring faith. They not only heard the gospel and received it unto salvation, but they continued in that faith, walking unto, walking in it unto rewards. Okay, somebody sent me an email uh, this past week about uh, 1 John 2, 2 and 3 or something. I can't remember the verses, doesn't matter. And um, uh, he said, well, I heard a preacher saying this about it. And so I sent him my commentary of both verses because he was concerned about verse 3, we'll say. I think it was 1 John 2, 2 and 3 or something, whatever. Anyway, but he was concerned about what the preacher said in verse 3. And so I said, well, you can't just analyze verse 3 without verse 2. You got to take things in context. You just pull something out of the Bible and say, here, you, that can mean anything. And he read it and he says, ah, that's absolutely right. He had forgotten that. And, you know, it, it doesn't matter who. Several people read my commentaries and they check them for typos and stuff. And this is a guy that read that commentary 
and checked it for typos. He had just forgotten that I'd said this. And he said, this preacher is adamant that after you're saved, you must prove it by doing good works. And I said, then everybody would lose their salvation. Everybody. Every single person would lose their salvation because if you have to prove your salvation after being saved, you are never saved in the first place by grace because salvation is a linear thing. It starts here, but it goes on forever. If you have to do something in order to be saved at any point from now until your death, then it was never of grace. And Paul says it is by grace through faith. But if I have to do, that means that I'm not really saved until I have done and you're only done with it when you are done, okay? If you think it through, just think it through logically. Any point after salvation, if there's something you have to do or not do in order to keep that salvation, it was up to you and not Jesus Christ. And that diminishes the cross of Christ and the efficacious shedding of his blood. It completely diminishes it. And it says that you are more important than what God has done in him. That's what that says. So that so. evidence, that's for others of that's our right. salvation. So they could see it and also... Well, you would hope. Right. Yeah, but it's not necessary. There is nothing in the Bible that says that the guy on the cross next to Jesus got down and did something good before he to prove that he didn't do anything, okay? And there are people that receive Jesus in a foxhole and they're blown up five seconds later. They didn't do anything and they didn't prove anything. And the only people that knew that they were saved was the guy that told them about Jesus the day before that heard him make his confession and then God himself, okay? You know, it just, you got to think things through. And it doesn't matter if it's the two seconds before the bomb blows that guy up or if it's the 25 years after somebody, goes, you know, makes his profession and goes to church and lives his life for Jesus. It doesn't matter. That time interval is not what's important. What is important is what Christ did and the change that happened in you, which is the sealing of the Spirit. Okay, that's the important thing. Anyway, keep thinking it through. Theology is logical. It will always be logical because God is the author of logic. He does nothing that is chaotic. He does nothing that is arbitrary. He does nothing that is vindictive. He is a God of logic and order. And if you can keep that in your mind, and if you don't understand that, just go back and watch the Genesis 1-1 sermon. It's very clear in there that God is a God of order, of harmony, of logic, and everything he will do is based on his eternal nature because he is outside of time. We're looking at everything in our, from our perspective as happening, you know, my father let me down and therefore God is gonna let me down. Uh, you know, um, I, I'm a terrible husband and therefore we're, everything is from our perception of what is going on in the stream of time. That's not the way that God works. God is eternal and when he makes a decree, it will never change, ever. Did you have something? Well, the hope that we have in the victory that the Lord gave us and he's, and the word says that the work that he has begun in us, he will will complete. complete. Yeah, until the so day of Christ Jesus. A lot of times I remind the Lord, Lord, you promised you're going to complete. You're going to complete it. I know I it's not despite my attitude and despite my failings, he will complete it. That's right. I think we went through that just a, a few weeks ago. That's Philippians, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, yes. Okay, right at towards the end of uh, Philippians. All right, so uh, uh, that's walking in it unto rewards, walking in your salvation unto rewards. And even more, he says that they, meaning he and Timothy of verse one, were thankful for their love for all the saints. The joy of the saints is that their love extends beyond just faith in Christ Jesus, but it extends to all who are in Christ Jesus. 
It is the bond of unity which is hoped for in the Christian walk, but one which too often breaks down into division, as is seen in his other epistles, excuse me, especially the book of 1 Corinthians. The entire epistle, 1 Corinthians, is about division. Division, division, division. Everything that he speaks of is based on the first chapter, which speaks of the division. He speaks about the dividing of, you know, following Paul or Apollos or Paul or whoever, and uh, or even somebody saying, well, I follow Christ, which is its own division because they're putting Christ in opposition to Paul and Apollos. And so every everyone there is divided and this is found elsewhere in the epistles as well, but especially in 1 Corinthians, okay? Now, sometimes, and I'm saying this like, well, we should have love for all the believers, right? Sometimes it is not possible to fellowship with other believers because their doctrine is so bad or so heretical that even if they are saved, you can't have fellowship with them. You have to be discerning about these things. You know, you can say, what does Paul say about a divisive man? Warn him once. Yeah, warn him twice and then have nothing to do with him. And he's speaking about a person that may very well be saved, but he's a divider. And he says, don't let that harm the fellowship. So when we talk about uh, right here, love for all the saints, you can love that guy and still not have anything to do with him because the Bible says not to have anything to do with him. All right. And so your idea of love is a volitional love. This guy is in need. I'm going to help him despite the fact that I can't stand him. Okay, it's a volitional love. It's not the kind of love that I have to love this person and that gets sappy and it turns into poor theology. It, it just takes you down the wrong path. And that's obvious based on what Paul says about many, many people in his epistles. And John too, John especially in uh, uh, his uh, John 2 and John 3, or 3, two, three John and 2 John and 3 John the two little epistles he talks about the same type of thing you know this guy loves to have the preeminence and when he when i come there i'm gonna i'm gonna let people know what he's doing you know there's not a lot of happy uh sappy love between them he may say i'm gonna defend him with my life but at the same time he's also saying i'm gonna call him out and he's gonna be uh chastised for his bad doctrine okay? that is love right you know, that is love if you are doing it from the biblical perspective that's absolutely right because God chastises people in love so that they will correct their failings. That's a very good point there. Okay, in his word ahead, Paul will give sound advice in order to avoid such future divisions. He will warn against heresies, and he will exhort those in Colossae in how to properly conduct their walk. If his words are adhered to, many troubling pitfalls will be avoided both for the Colossians and for those of us who are willing to receive them. Life application. How willing are we to spend time in the Word each day in order to be sound in our theology and faithful in our work? Or, I'm sorry, faithful in our walk. Let us endeavor to read the Word and to study in order to show ourselves approved. Great rewards lie ahead for those who are willing to look to the eternal and not just to the here and now. We have to know the word in order to know what's pleasing to the Lord. You can't disassociate the two. It is impossible. I said it last week or two weeks ago, and I'll repeat it right now, is that you cannot know God. It is impossible. Other than general revelation, you cannot know God intimately without Jesus Christ. It is impossible. And you cannot know Jesus Christ without knowing the Bible. It is impossible. This is the source that tells us of him. And so if you want to have that intimate relationship with God, 
You have to have it with Jesus, and you must have it, therefore, understanding the Word of God. It is a logical connection that we cannot dismiss, and it doesn't matter what sappy feelings, I've used that word three times today, I, it's, I shouldn't use that word probably, but it is a word that is, describes too much that's going on in the church, where people base their theology on their emotions. And once you do that, you have lost the battle of doctrine completely. Uh, I said it uh, three or four weeks ago. I'm sure I did. Maybe it was on a Sunday. But I said that you must never allow your theology to be based on your emotions. Instead, you want to have your emotions based on your theology. Jesus Christ died for me, and that should bring me to a state of the greatest of emotions. And I should be passionate about wanting to know more about Jesus because of that. Okay, that is that is what we should be doing. Not, and we get a completely the opposite. <clears throat> excuse me, completely the opposite in churches, and that is not how it should be. Okay, so we're in verse one five. Sure. Yes. Philippians one six is that verse. That, oh, okay. That was. J. Vernon McGee's favorite verse when he would sign your Bible. Oh, is that right? Philippians 1 6. So it's at the beginning of um, the epistle and not at the end of it. Okay, Philippians 1 verse 6. And it says there, um, oh, yeah, that's right. It was at the beginning. Being confident of this very thing that he was begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Okay, and you know, it, it, we went through Philippians so fast that I was just thinking that it was towards the end, but it was right there at the beginning. So we just blew through the book of Philippians. We should probably go back and do it again here just to make sure we didn't miss anything. But uh, there you go. Okay, and apparently Burke says that's what J. Vernon McGee used to sign when he signed his wow. name to something he'd add in that, that particular verse, Philippians 1, 6. So, um, okay, five. Five because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Okay, this one has got a which and a before that yours doesn't. It says, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. Mm. Okay, so there you go. Uh, let's see here. And that's why we, it's good to read them from the different source text because you can see the differences. Now, just yesterday and today, <laughs> I typed, um, Acts 9 verse, what was it? I'm going to turn there and I think it's 9, 3, and 4. But And you can go there right now while I'm going so we'll be on the same thing. And you can read the difference. And this is why you want to know these differences because there are differences. And we talked about this last week, this uh, source text. But um, <clears throat> let's see here. What is it? Acts? Um, Acts 9 and you want to read, I said uh, 3 and 4, it's not. It's um, um, which one is it? Um, uh, five and six. That's what we want to read. So when you get there, you read okay. five and six. Okay. And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Okay, this one says, And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So oh, they cut out quite a bit. That's very different. Yeah. Now, the reason why they believe the difference is, and of course, people will use the subjective term, um, uh, the, the best text say. Well, that's your opinion on what's the best text. But uh, it is believed that uh, the reason why this 
version, this source text includes that, is because somebody took Paul's words from, uh, I think it's chapter 22, where he's testifying, where he says those words, and they put them back in here, okay? So it could be that those were later inserted, the ones about kicking against the goats. It doesn't, nothing is lost. And if your Bible properly does its job, it will footnote this and say, listen, this text has this and this one doesn't. But the fact is that that verse is still in the Bible, even if it's not here, because it's still recorded in chapter 22. So nothing is lost and scholars are aware of these things and people argue over which is the original and which isn't. You shouldn't let that get you too bent out of shape, but you can see the difference. And that's why it's good to have that source text read and this one together, because then you're able to see the differences and you can talk about them, okay? But if you want to know the analysis of that right there, you can wait uh, nine days and that will be out in nine days. And then you can find out what I have to say about it. And then someday, if we ever get through with the uh, New Testament, going through Revelation, then we'll come back and we'll do the book of Acts again, and we will be able to review that in detail. But that'll be some time away. For right now, you have to read the commentary, or you can listen to it read, or you can uh, see it on YouTube where the people have put them. But if you just want to read it, I can forward you the Acts commentary anytime, and then you can start picking up one day at a time. We're already up to 651 pages of Acts, and we're only in chapter 9. It's 28 chapters long, so this is going to be a really long commentary when it's done. But whatever, we'll get we'll get through it in the next uh, about a year and three quarter. We'll be done with the the book. But I am so much enjoying doing the commentary on Acts. It's great. Okay. Anyway, um, one five. We're going to do that. Hidako, would you come here? Uh, I, I need you to do something for me. I definitely need you to do something for me. Uh, no, I, I'm not going to trick you or anything. I just need you to do something for me. Um, uh, you stand right here so people can see you, Sergio, so that they know I'm not leaving. I just need to do this right now. Oh, they can see it. Uh, okay, well, as long as they can see, yeah. I just need my wife to do something. She's going to have to miss a little bit of the Bible class. Would you go down to... Yeah, just, okay. Um, they could hear you too. It was okay. a very sensitive <laughs> microphone. I, I have it cranked up. You can hear a mosquito. <laughs> so we can hear you in the back when you were speaking. I definitely heard everything. Okay. Anyway. Um, I'm going to go back and rewatch this so I know what you told her. Okay, well, whatever. Um, we don't want, I, it's just that, you know, we have something going on and, and uh, anyway. Okay, so. Uh, poor Hidako, she looked up and she thought, I'm going to set her up again. I always do that, so I'm not setting my, I would, wouldn't do that. No, what's that? Okay, well, I, I, I just, I didn't want to bother you. You're, you've had a long week, and so she hasn't. She's been laying around doing nothing all week. Okay, yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, one five, Paul's words are now a continuation of the previous verses. I apologize online. I, I do apologize for doing that, but something happened and we needed to get that corrected. So um, taken together, the intent becomes much more evident. We give thanks to God, the God and Father, uh, where is it? Yes, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. Five, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. They had given thanks for the faith of those in Colossae in Christ Jesus and in their love for the saints. Now explaining that further, he says, because of the hope which is laid up for you in 
heaven. Okay, once again, I could get into a tangent on eternal salvation based on that. I'm not going to unless my comments from eight years ago uh, did, but just think about it. The hope which is laid up for you in heaven, it's laid up. If something is laid up, it's a done deal, but I won't get into that right now. The faith in Christ Jesus is what gives them this hope and which resulted in their love for all the saints. This sentiment then is comparable to what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So let me take you there very quickly so you can see that. And where is 1 Thessalonians in comparison to Colossians, Sergio? It's the next right book. Yeah. There you go. It's the next book. I'm just seeing if he was... Uh, I, I'm ready there. Oh, okay. Uh, remembering without ceasing of your work of faith, labor, of love, and patience, of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and Father. Okay. If you want to know where 1 Thessalonians is and you're not sure because you're not really familiar with the Bible, just really quickly flip through the New Testament and you'll see a letter beginning with T. You've got 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. They're all packed together. They're the T's. And so all you need to do is just look for one of them and you're within pages of where, what you're looking for. Okay. It's just, if you want to know where the Psalms is, just open your Bible right to the middle and you'll be there. Okay. There are That's little incredible. T's. Five yeah. T's. Yeah. And five T's in a row. Absolutely. Well, now you have. Okay. You've got a new squiggle for your brain. But there, there are these little keys to help get you through the books of the Bible. And the Lord did this because we are like dull. And so he has put these wonderful clues so that we can find our way through the Bible very quickly once we know the keys. Anyway, um, the three tenets of faith, hope, and love work together and complement one another. Hope is the object which is to be attained. In this case, Paul notes that the object is our heavenly home, which awaits us. Because of this, hope, faith, and love then grow in us. It is as if the hope is a fire which kindles the resulting faith and love. This is how it should be with all the believers. And as I said, that's an ideal. We can't live by ideals in a fallen world, but this is the ideal. And you know, I was taking a nap earlier today. I, I get doing all of these things and uh, every day I have to lie down for about 15 minutes. I, I have to, I gotta get all the stuff that I've been studying out of my head. And so I usually lie down and it's a couple minutes and I was thinking while I was laying there, how is the Lord going to work it out? Because there are people right now in the church, for example, that I just don't ever want to see again. And yet I know I'm not going to have that attitude someday. I'm still going to be me. But how is it going to be that all of this is going to be reconciled so that we're not worried about the petty things that bother us right now? The glory of the Lord. Yeah, absolutely. And I just wonder how he's, because I know he is. We're all going to be in perfect union and perfect fellowship. He wouldn't have it any other way. How is he going to take all of my neuroses and my failings and, and how is he going to correct that in me? Put off and put on, but still, we're still the same people. You know, people say, oh, you're not going to know your old life. Listen, if that's true, there is no point in going to heaven because what's the point? You're not you anymore. I disagree with that. I think that's a completely false teaching that people have. And secondly, if we don't know our old life, then the glory of what Christ did for us means nothing, okay? He saved a guy that is as corrupt as any person on the planet when he saved Charlie Garrett. And I don't ever want to forget that. Not for all of eternity. Okay? And so for people to say that... He forgets our sin as far as the East is the West. Absolutely. He does. But 
we aren't going to forget that. We're not going to forget that we were saved by Christ. When it says that, he's saying that our, when he says he forgets our sins, that means they're forgiven forever. That's what that means. So even after he wipes our tears, we still... Absolutely. We're still going to know who we are. We're, if not, what's the point of being saved? What is the point of the life that you have lived? I, I completely disagree with it, but somehow he will be able to take all of that and he will be able to put it together in a way so that we don't have this, this stuff that goes on between us right now. Absolutely. Um, but uh, when he says he forgets something, there is in God, and I talked about this in the early <laughs> Genesis sermons, God cannot forget anything. He is God, and therefore he knows everything that ever has happened, ever happens, and ever will happen. He knows it right now. When it says that God forgets, the idea of forgetting is actively pushing something out of the way or moving it back in. And so when it says, uh, then God remembered Noah, he never forgot Noah. It's just an active uh, for our benefit. In other words, it isn't God forgetting and remembering. It is for our benefit. The reading of that is that God remembered Noah. It is, there's this active occurrence that is happening in the life of Noah where he is remembered. And that is what the Bible is telling us. But God isn't going to forget anything, ever. He knows every sin we've ever committed, and he's going to be able to revel in what his son did to reconcile us to him. Everything will be there. But I just don't know how it's going to be where we can overlook all of the things that we've done, that other people have done to us, and that we've done to them. I just can't wait for it. I, I can't wait for it. Anyway, that's what I was thinking about when I was laying there getting all of the news articles out of my head today. Okay, so um, uh, let's see here. This is how it should be, as I said, with all believers. It's an ideal. We have a hope, and therefore we should exercise faith in Christ Jesus and love towards others. The hope which lies ahead is then explained by Paul with the words of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. His words, the truth of the gospel, are in the emphatic position. Okay, if I could read it so that you'd understand of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. He's just, he's emphatically saying that, in other words. As Charles, oh, yes, as Charles Ellicott notes, it refers to the gospel not chiefly as a message of graciousness and mercy, but rather as a revelation of eternal truths, itself changeless as the truth it reveals. That's Charles Ellicott. The gospel was and is God's plan for the salvation of man. In receiving the gospel, we are granted a heavenly hope, a return to Eden and God's paradise, which was lost so long ago. But... With our return, we will have something more than Adam had. Here it is. This is what I was just talking about. We will have the understanding that God has done everything needed to grant us access and to keep us in his presence for all eternity. We are not under law. We are not being imputed sin. Therefore, we are guaranteed to go to heaven. And when we get there, he will have it in us in a state as it says, and to keep us in his presence for all eternity. We will be glorified and whatever it's going to be like. Then I wrote a friend today and I said in the letter, um, I said, uh, you know, if I could make a comparison to what I think heaven would be like, it would be Florida in the summertime. And if he can outdo that, then it's going to be really great because I love Florida in the summertime. There, you got the clouds that 
rise up over the land. They get big and they get scary and then they start rushing towards the coast and the wind cools everything down by like 12, 15 degrees sometimes. And then the, the rains just come pounding down and the lightning and the thunder. And then it all rushes out over the Gulf of Mexico and the sun is setting and all those clouds are lit up just like glory. And you think, how could anything be better than this? How could anything be better than Florida in the summertime? And yet we're not even gonna consider Florida in the summertime when we see what he's given us. But that's the only thing I can think that is so majestically beautiful is everything about it. You look at the trees, they just, they, they grow like before your eyes. Everything is so green and it just, you, you mow your lawn, you go in to have, you know, a cup of cold water to cool down, you look out and your lawn is another five inches again. It's, it's everything is alive and vibrant and, and beautiful. I, I just can't wait to see what he has in store if he has done this for the people of the world, giving us a Florida. Unbelievable. This is, this is a good glimmer. Oh, yeah. Like. You want to see a, a glimmer of heaven. Just come to Florida in the summer. Okay. And you know what? It's hot. It's muggy. There's mosquitoes. <laughs> but just Florida. It's just, and the beaches are so beautiful. And after the rain, they're all, there's no footprints on them. There's no tire tracks. It's just this beautiful blanket and you're the first one to run out there and roll around in it and mess it up for everybody that comes after you. It's great. Okay. What about Sea of Galilee in the spring when everything is green and got anemones growing red, Golan Heights, cows, trees, yeah. bombs fly. Yeah, bombs fly. He's been, putting, he's been putting glimmers all over the world. All over the world. That's right. But none of them glimmer like Florida. I'm sorry. I just Okay, the gospel was and is God's plan for the salvation of man. In receiving the gospel, we are granted a heavenly hope. I read that already. Okay, we will be able to appreciate what was unknown to Adam because of the conscience we possess, having acquired the knowledge of good and evil. Thus, we will always be able to look with awe and wonder at the majesty of Christ's work for us. They could not do that. They did not have the knowledge of good and evil, and they needed to fall in order for them to attain that. That was necessary for them to attain that. Okay, and because they have attained it, he has become like man, has become like one of us, having the knowledge of good and evil, and therefore they were sent out of the garden because if they lived forever, imagine a fallen being living forever, forever corrupting for all of eternity. It would be terrible, okay? It would be what is happening in the world right now times 10 billion times 10 billion and getting worse every single day as he has fallen. And so it was understood that he needed to withhold the tree of life from man until the time when it could be properly appreciated. And that is what Christ is. He is the giver of that which can be properly appreciated. Okay, life application. We may think of what Adam has had as the epitome of all that we could ever wish for, but we will have even more. When we are in our heavenly dwelling, we will have the appreciation for all of what God was willing to do for us in order to bring us back to himself. We will have Jesus, radiant in splendor and majesty, to see and to worship for all eternity. Today, take time to thank God for Jesus Christ, our hope of eternity in God's presence. Yes, Burke. Genesis 3. Yeah. 3. You know, was the, the, the fruit of that tree that they ate of. Right. It's going to be made all new in the new. That's it's right. It's going to be a tree That's of life. And Revelation and chapter and 21 and 22. Absolutely. It's all restored, which was lost, but it's going to be better because we will have Jesus. Titus. No curse. 
No curse. Okay. Looking for the blessed hope. That's right, the blessed hope. That's the hope, is Jesus. It's far more than they had in Eden. Far more, because we have the knowledge of what Christ has done. And that knowledge is revealed in the person of Jesus. Marvelous. Okay, we are in verse 1 6. 1 6. I'm going to start from the last two words from verse 5 because it's the yep. same sentence. Yep, yep. The gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Okay, and this one says, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. So it's, it's close, very close. Okay, um, let's see here, one six. Paul now refers to the truth of the gospel from the previous verse with the word which. It is this message, as he says, which has come to you. The gospel is that which established their faith. That's, you can see that in Romans 10, 17. Let me take you there really quickly. Okay, Burke said it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So, as Paul noted in verse 4, and which has laid up the hope for them, as he noted in verse 5. Next, he uses hyperbole by saying that this same gospel message which has come to them has also come in all the world. It is important to understand that he is using hyperbole because replacement theology wrongly uses this verse to show that Jesus' words of Matthew 24, 14 are fulfilled in Paul's words of this verse. Such is not the case. Paul uses a different word for world than Jesus does. Let me take you to 24, 14 so you can see this. 24, 14 is written to who about what? That is to the Jews about the end times, the tribulation period leading into the millennium. Okay, I'm sorry for people that feel differently, but that is the context. If you take a verse out of context, you have formed a pretext, and that is exactly what that is. 24:14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Okay, and as I said, replacement theologians say that Paul's words fulfill that. It doesn't fulfill it, okay? It hasn't happened yet. And until it happens, it hasn't happened, all right? That is Jesus speaking to the Jews about what is coming upon them, okay? And as I said a couple weeks ago, uh, it, people will say, well, no, you know, this is saying this and this is saying this, and it's all, uh, these are believers, and therefore he must be speaking to the church, okay? If you take Matthew, 24, and then Mark, I think it's 12, the Olivet Discourse there, and then Luke, I think it's 21 or 22, I, I can't remember right now, but if you take those three and you put them side by side, I'm going to do this one these days. I'm going to take every verse that is the same and leave it in Matthew as the, the first, and then anything from Luke, I'll put in red and insert it into there, and then anything from uh, Mark, should have said Mark and then Luke, anyway, and then put that in blue. And so you can see that it is one discourse. It is one discourse, okay, but each one is focusing on a different part of Jesus' words. And when, when Mark speaks about it, he speaks about the synagogues. The word synagogue is used only one time in the epistles. It is in the book of James that is written to Jewish. 
the Jews, the 12 tribes scattered abroad, okay? So uh, he speaks about the synagogues. He speaks about being exiled in Luke. Is the church going to be exiled? Anybody? Absolutely not. If you take the context of the Olivet Discourse, it is one, one discourse, and it is very, very clear that he is speaking to the Jewish people about something that will happen to them. It has nothing to do with the church. And if you take Matthew 24 and you use it as a source for your instruction, I'm not, you know, all scripture is God breathed and it's useful for everybody, but it doesn't apply to everybody in the same way. But if you take Matthew 24 and you try to apply it to your doctrine, you're going to have an actual, not just a, a close to be, but an actual contradiction between what Jesus says and what Paul says. 100% contradiction because they're speaking to different people about different issues. When you see that Jesus is speaking to the Jews about one issue and Paul is speaking to the church about another, there's no contradiction because you're keeping the context. So remember that. But anyway, Matthew 24, 14, they say are fulfilled in Paul's words of this verse. Such is not the case. As I said, Paul uses a different word for world than Jesus does. It is true that he uses the same word as Jesus in other verses, such as in Romans 10, 18, but the context indicates that he is not speaking of the gospel itself having gone out into the entire world. The context of his words in Romans is based on an Old Testament reference concerning the general revelation of God to the world. From there, Israel is rebuked for rejecting his special revelation, meaning the gospel of Jesus Christ. Further, Paul uses the same word and in the same way in Romans chapter 1. He says here, hang on, let me get you to Romans 1 verse 8. And we'll be there in just a second. Okay, 1 verse 8. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Okay, it is clear that Paul is using hyperbole there to show that the faith of those in Rome seems to shout out to all the world. Rome was the center of the Roman Empire, and therefore the faith of those in Rome extended out in a unique way. Clearly, not all the Roman Empire, much less the entire inhabited world, had heard of the faith of those in Rome. How do we know that? Because Paul is still out evangelizing people in the Roman Empire. So it couldn't have gone out to the whole world. Okay, he's using hyperbole. Further, outside of the Roman Empire, which is actually a part of the world, like China, did not have the gospel at the time. Okay, so you have to take the words of Paul in the proper context and in the proper sense of how he is saying them, okay? It is an inappropriate stretch to take Jesus' words of the gospel going out to the entire world and then to apply them in an absolute way to what occurred in the first century. Because we've got Ray and Jess Willett over in Papua New Guinea right now that are getting the word out to parts of the world that have never heard the word. So Jesus must be speaking about the entire world in a different way than Paul was speaking about. Must be. However, concerning the gospel, which had come to those in Colossae, he next says that it is bringing forth fruit. Fruit is the result of something else. The gospel had been preached, and there was a result because of it. People were coming to Christ. They were being obedient to the message and they were continuing to share the message with others. These things are evident from Paul's coming words. However, 
He is writing the letter now to correct misconceptions or misrepresentations of Christ, which were already coming about. We talked about this, I think it was you and me, uh, about, um, uh, no, it was my friend, somebody else, uh, and he was saying that uh, how early heresy crept into the church. I, maybe I said it in the class last week. Anyway, um, I did. Okay, he's talking about how heresy crept in so early, and he's citing some of these people in the second and third century AD, and I said the purpose of writing these letters was because heresy had already crept in. He's explicit several times in that, and it's implicit throughout almost every letter that he and the other apostles writes, is that heresy had crept in and that false doctrine had crept in. Read the book of Jude. That's all it's about is just people creeping in and doing inappropriate things. The gospels and the epistles, I'm sorry, the epistles were written to correct something that needed to be corrected because the word of the apostles did not stand in the minds of the people and it was being twisted. And so they needed to have a written record. Obviously God intended for that to be, but uh, this is why they were written, is because there was heresy and bad doctrine being crept in. And you look at two Thessalonians, and he said, I already told you this. So he's actually telling them what he had already told them, which would been, uh, which had been twisted, which had been misunderstood. So in two Thessalonians, let's go there. He actually says it. He, he, I'll just read it to you. I'm not going to read you the whole thing. But this is how quickly we get, if we don't have a written source of something, this is how quickly these things go. It says, um, uh, let's see here, the first epistle, I want the second epistle. So there we go. And he says, um, do you not remember? Um, uh, where is that? Um, good pleasure. Um, uh, it's right in here somewhere. Don't you remember? Come on, help me out, Charlie. Your brain isn't working great. Ah, here it is, verse 5, 2 Thessalonians 2, 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? He's telling him, we talked about this. How can you not get this right? And so he had to restate what he had already told them because people were saying, well, the uh, resurrection has already occurred in this epistle and uh, the Antichrist is already revealed and they're all t talking about all these crazy things. And he said, don't you remember? We talked about this. That's why there must be a written word of God. And even with a written word of God, because people are not willing to do the hard work and take it in its whole counsel, we've got all kinds of misrepresentations of the word of God itself, even though it's written down. The more that you know this word, the better off you're going to be when you go to a new church or when you move to a new location and decide, well, I'm going to attend this church or that church. Unless you know what this says, you have no idea, no idea at all if that person is telling you correct doctrine or not. You have no basis for it. And that's why I say to you, read your Bible. Every day of your life, you want to read your Bible. And then after you get done reading your Bible, you want to think on the Bible and you want to meditate on it all day long. And then when you get done doing that, then you want to go back before bed and you want to read your Bible. And that way, when you're sleeping, you're going to process what you just finished up the day with. It's important to know this word because if not, you have no basis for your doctrine at all. Uh, we've got some pizza. Look at that. Come on in. Go drop it. Take it in the back room, would you? Just put it on the table in the back room. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, see? Okay. So, yeah, we've got pizza coming. We have um, uh, a birthday party for Pat. And so, because I knew that she'd be here today, I thought, I'm going to get some pizza and we're going to have some. So everybody's welcome to stay and have a couple pieces of pizza before you leave. That would be wonderful. It's, a, it's, it's her spiritual birthday today. It's her 96th birthday next 
Sunday. So uh, we're, we're kind of double double uh, blessing on that one. Yeah. Can you imagine that? Yep. Yep. Okay. Take take all you want. Take a whole handful, buddy. It's it's good. I, well, let me don't tell Wad that you took that if it's going to get me in trouble, okay? Don't do that. All right, you be blessed. Have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you. We'll, we'll thank the Lord for you when we have our final prayer today. All right, you take good care. All right, so let's see here. We're going to go on with fruit. and um, Oh, yeah, okay, so uh, he's writing about misconceptions or misrepresentations of Christ, which were already coming about. He's writing to ensure that the fruit which is brought forth will be good fruit. This is why he continues with, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace, the yes, the grace of God in truth. That's Paul's words. As it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the great grace of God in truth. They had heard the message. They had received the grace of God and it was received in truth. In order to ensure that this same message would continue on unstained by bad doctrine or even heresy, he will continue with the words of this letter, okay? And you're gonna see all kinds of, you know, Gnosticism is addressed in here, other heresies are addressed this early in the church. Christ had just been crucified 20 some, 30 some years earlier. The apostle had been going out and telling people about Jesus all over Israel. Paul is called, Paul starts evangelizing with Barnabas and then with Silas all over the Roman Empire. He's telling these people these things, and within the time that it gets him to get back to where he is going, to the next church, he gets report that they had misunderstood him. And so he's got to refute that, and he's got to refute that. And in Colossae, they had the heresy of Gnosticism and some others that were immediately, immediately creeping up. And we need to understand, this is one thing that you should do, okay? We talk about heresies from time to time in uh, the studies but I don't really address them specifically unless the verse addresses it. But it is really good if you have time to study what different heresies are. And there are, there are innumerable heresies out there. And if you study them, you know what the name is, and then you study what that name is identifying, uh, Sabellianism, okay, there's one. Yeah, I mean, there are just all kinds, and they're just these little incipient things that come into the church and that get resurrected from time to time. They're already addressed in the Bible, and yet they'll get resurrected by somebody. You know, you get the Arian heresy, okay? Arius in uh, 350 AD, right around that time frame. What does that equate to today? Arius? The Jehovah's Witnesses. The same heresy that was refuted all that time ago is resurrected in the Jehovah's Witnesses. They, these things just keep coming around. They keep rolling around with a new name. But it, and the reason why this happens is because people don't know their Bible. And there are people out there that are willing to twist people and manipulate them for their own sake, for their own profit, for their own power, for their own you know, sexual pleasure, whatever. People will take the Bible and they will twist it. And unless you know this word and you are familiar with it, you are susceptible to that. And you say, oh, that'll never happen to me. How do you know? If you don't know what you're being taught, if it's true or not, and you get a person that's convincing, he sounds authoritative, he's a great orator, he could be teaching anything. 
Okay, I could give the example of you know who, but I'm not going to, but best orator I know. I mean, the guy is one of the greatest speakers in Christianity, and yet he openly teaches heresy, openly. And people just sit there and they applaud him because he's great on America, he's great on supporting Israel, and yet he's teaching heresy at the same time. Jews are saved by following the law of Moses. He's sending people to hell, that's all he's doing. He's sending people to hell by teaching that dual covenantalism. You have to be versed in scripture to be able to identify these. So study your heresies if you have time. Just look them up. Heresies found in the Bible. It's a list of about that long and it gets longer every day, but there they are. And they will, the person that came up with the bad doctrine is usually who it's named after, okay? And then from there, you can identify what is wrong. You may not know what's right, but you can identify what's wrong. And that's what we did in Genesis 1-1 with the nature of God. Instead of telling you what the nature of God is, because that doesn't help you at all if you don't know what it isn't. So I started with all the isn'ts and I said, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't. Okay, this only leaves one option. Okay, actually it leaves two. There's no God and we're just making stuff up or this is the God of the Bible. And actually the first option isn't an option at all because there must be a God. If you're sitting there on a chair, there must be a God that created everything, okay? As I said, Einstein proved that with the theory of relativity, and then he spent, it scared him so badly that he spent the rest of his life trying to come up with the theory of everything so he could get God out of the equation because he was a Benedict Spinoza pantheist. Everything is God, okay? And he didn't want to admit that the theory of relativity proved that there was a point when time, space, and matter came into existence at the same time. It didn't create itself, and therefore there must be a creator, okay? It scared him that much, okay? Anyway, we'll do one more, and yes, we got time. We'll do one more, and then we're going to have some pizza. You are in verse 1-7, sir. Oh, uh, um, I was thinking about the pizza. Uh, oh, yeah, you sure were. He's over here drooling. It's all over his face. Verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bond servant who is faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. Okay, as you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Okay, so it's very close, but a couple small differences. All right, now uh, Paul now introduces Epaphras, whom he calls our dear fellow servant or bond servant in that one. Okay, the word is uh, doulos. It means somebody that is a servant that is unpaid, a bond servant. okay? And I'm sure that's the word that he's using there, doulos. I, I can't think of another one that he would have used. But, and I didn't write the Greek down, so I can't say that 100%. But um, a bond servant can be a slave. It can be a person that is simply bound, but not really a slave. You know, he binds himself to somebody else. But it's for all intents and purposes, a slave. And that's why some people will say Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, and others will say Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Okay, there you go, he's bonded. Uh, this may or may not be the same as Epaphroditus, who was seen in the letter to the Philippians. We just got done with that, okay? Epaphroditus almost died and he's, I'm sending you back and or sending him back to you. And okay, it may or may not be the same person. However, Epaphras is merely a shortened form of the same name, and so it is possible, okay? However, in verse 4.12, Paul says that he is one of you. For this reason, it does not appear that he is the same person. Either way, this individual was an evangelist. 
having taught the word of the Lord to those at Colossae. This is seen in the words, as you also learned from Epaphras. This is based on the previous verse, which said, since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. Thus, the bringing forth fruit, which Paul mentioned in verse 6, is realized in the evangelism of Epaphras. He was not just an evangelist, okay? Who is the evangelist in Acts chapter 8? Philip, that's right. So you've been reading the commentary, or you just remembered that anyway. Good job. Okay, I know you do. I'm just kidding you. Okay, so um, he was not just an evangelist, but one who was successful in his duties. In calling him our dear fellow servant, Paul uses a term that is seen 10 times in the New Testament, but his use of it will only be in this book. He uses the term here, and then he will use it once again when speaking of Tychicus in verse 4-7. It is a term which indicates belonging to the same master, and thus it is a term of endearment towards these two men. As Paul notes of Epaphras here, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. That's Paul's words. Okay, there is a dispute as to whether the true reading is on our behalf, which yours said, okay, or on your behalf. Either way, whether ministering for Paul and Timothy or whether ministering for the good of those in Colossae, he was faithful in his ministry and he is so recognized for it by Paul. Okay, it's one of those words that somebody said you're in one source text and another said our in another source text and people will fight it out, but nothing is harmed in doctrine over that, which is a good thing. Life application. How are you perceived by the leaders of your church? Do they know you as a seat warmer, a fair weather attendee, or as a faithful servant who faithfully ministers in the church and towards others? The record is being compiled and it will all be laid before the Lord on the day when we stand before him for rewards and losses. Don't waste right now because it counts forever. Okay, and we'll stop there because we got pizza. I'm sorry to cut the class short, but the pizza calls. Yeah, okay, so we'll have a prayer and then we'll be done. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to uh, come into your presence and to have a little bit of food celebrating a 96th birthday and a spiritual birthday of Pat today. And we thank you that uh, Jody and Don, Don and Jody, have gotten back safely and that uh, they're looking good. And uh, we pray that uh, the marriage of them will last many, many long years, unless you come first, which would be by far preferable. But Lord, we just thank you that they're here and safe in Sarasota. And Lord, we ask that you bless this food and we thank you for Tom who brought it for us. And we pray for him and his wife, asking that you'll continue to bless their business as they go into these slow summer months, that they'll be able to just endure and uh, uh, even prosper under your hand. And Lord, we love you. We thank you for this precious word, Colossians. And we just are so thankful to have the word that we can cherish and to read every day. And Lord, uh, today I got some photos from Isaac in Uganda, who's handing out Bibles in the native language of the people there. And Lord, we're so thankful that that is possible because people are willing to help out with that ministry. So we ask that you bless that and those people that receive that word will want to read it and to study it and to know it all the days of their lives. Thank you, Lord, for all these things. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.